right, we're going to go ahead and begin. I'm going to open this up with prayer, and then I'm going to launch. I'm going to get into basically ten principles and scripture texts of validating a having a Christian state, and I'll explain more after we pray and read scripture. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we again commit ourselves to you for this next hour, that you might instruct us from your most holy and precious word. Father, this is an area where we have been negligent. Uh, Lord, we find ourselves uh, having incomplete ideas or we're completely ignorant of the topic itself. So, Lord, as we look at Psalm 2 and the, the applications, the ramifications, the implications of the text, help us to understand it, receive it, and then give us the wisdom to promote it, Lord, as truth. So we do commit ourselves to you. We ask for your blessing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me read Psalm 2, and then we'll get into these 10 principles. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his, wrath, or in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not, that he may not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right. Um, beloved, I understand and I, I, I empathize with the challenge that we have before us. And I confess that when I first began wanting to go through the Psalms, I was not intending to spend large amounts of time talking about the topic of uh, Christian nationalism, but it is a topic of the day. It is something that's being discussed. I have not read any of the modern day literature. I haven't read the recently published books. I don't feel like I need to um, because this is a topic that has already been addressed multiple times hundreds of years ago. And I can't imagine those new books being any better or well argued as those books, though particularly the ones that I have referred you to several weeks back. 
But I realize that we are talking about things that we're not accustomed to. Therefore, there's a challenge in listening and hearing it and accepting it. And there's a lot of questions that come with it, I understand. And I certainly um, invite you to come and ask questions. And we may not have time this afternoon to do that, but I invite uh, you to do that. I want you to ask questions because I think, and I'm going to say this, and, and this is, um, I think this is, this is the future battle of the church right here. What our expectations are going to be in civil government and what grounds do we have for those expectations. I think we are moving beyond and past the day where heresies like Dar uh, Darby's dispensationalism that has taken such root and has infected even so many in the reform circles that this world isn't worth fighting for, that God has no concern for this world that this world is going to be consumed up in flames and it's a waste of time. Thus, you've heard the old saying, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. And many Christians have used that as an excuse to be unbiblical and unchristian in their cultural war. We are in a cultural war. But even in our influence in culture, we viewed culture as either neutral or terrible, and we should have nothing to do with either one. We'll spend our time thinking about heaven and look at the effects, look at the effect that has had upon this nation. It has allowed evil men and women to take possession of very prominent and important places in our government and that have done nothing but promote Satanism, atheism, and, get, and be at war with those who profess Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's why we've seen the decimation of children. Listen, paganism has always sacrificed children. Molech, the God of the Old Testament, was a God who required child sacrifice. What did we see in the New Testament? What did we see Herod doing when he thought Jesus, this baby, had been prophesied to be what? Ruler. What did he do? Well, let's go murder the children of a certain age. He had no problem doing that. I submit to you, my brothers and sisters, Christianity is the answer to this world. Jesus Christ is the answer to this world. And it's not just the gospel, that is, believing that your sins can be forgiven. It's the whole package. It's the whole biblical concept. It's what it means. It's what it means for this world to belong to God. Let's back up in history. And none of this is my notes. This is just, this is me. 
You remember the connection I made in Psalm 1 to Adam. There's only two ways to go. Psalm 1 lays out two ways, right? There's the way of the fool and there's the way of the wise. Psalm 2, I want to do something very similar. I want to go back. Let's go back to Adam. I'm going to try to be patient with me. When God created Adam, how did he create Adam? Well, I mean, I know flesh and blood. I mean, a man. We are, I know that. But he created Adam with authority as head. He was the head of the human race, right? And he was going to remain the head of the human race as long as what? As long as he stood in the right place between God and man. He was the federal head, covenant head of the human race in the covenant of works. If he had passed the time of probation, not just himself, but all of his posterity, the human race would have received everlasting life. Now, I hope you can agree with that because that is basic Christian theology. Brothers and sisters, who's the second Adam? Who's the last Adam? He's the head. Where Adam fell, Christ is now the head, not only of the new humanity, the elect, but of what? The whole world. And that's one of the reasons, uh, Samuel Willard, one of the things that I learned from him in reading through his exposition of the Shorter Catechism, and he spent so much time laying out the covenant of works and paralleling the covenant of works with the covenant of grace and Adam with Christ. And he made, I'm paraphrasing, but he made this statement. He said, if you want to understand the covenant of grace, you need to understand the covenant of works. You need to understand the first one. If you want to also understand Christ, you need to understand Adam. Because scripture identifies him as the what? The second Adam and the last Adam. Now, again, I don't think any, there's any argument among any serious Christian that if Adam had maintained his moral dignity, he'd be the head of the human race. And he'd be over every facet of government, wouldn't he? He'd be head. Now apply that to Christ. You see, this is not a stretch. That is, we're not making, we're not making theology up. We're seeing the continuity and the connectivity of God's world and history. He's, and that if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, that speaks of his royal sovereignty, you're going to find him being identified as the what? The last Adam. 
There's a connection there. The apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's making for us. And we should always have that in mind, making these connections. That is, that is, we're moving beyond and past a very immature, truncated view of this world and what it means to be a disciple and follower of Christ when we just focus on individual discipleship. I'm all for preaching to the individual, but we can't end it there. We have to move beyond that and address the world around us. And that's been the epic failure of the last hundred and something years in this nation. And it looks like in all of various Protestant nations are suffering the same thing. Secondly, let me address the attack on this version of Christianity. I will assure you that when it's all said and done in this cultural war, and as the evil powers that be are seeking to diminish, um, disenfranchise, punish, persecute, uh, the Christian faith is not going to include Joel Osteen and others like him. He poses no threat to the new world order. He poses no threat to the broader understanding, the rich understanding that this is our father's world. And he has established the first head being in Adam and the second head who takes his place, who has victory, is his son. So this attack that has been on Christendom, you know, that used to be a word. It used to be a thing. I don't think it is much anymore because Christendom has fallen in that Western sense of the world. But Christendom was a thing. It was called the Western world. It was called Christendom. It was also called colonialism. There was so much of the colonialism, none of it perfect. Just like your family's not perfect, this nation's not perfect. There is not a perfect family and there is not and will not be a perfect nation until Christ comes back and settles everything. But there has been an attack on Christianity for decades in our own country. Uh, the anti-colonialism. So much of the movement of the West into what we call colonialism, the establishment of nations and states and the improvements of education, hospitals, econ economy, and all these other things were motivated by Christianity. There is without a doubt, without a doubt, proven Read Jonathan S. Edwards' History of Christianity. Without a doubt, that education, commerce, um, what's the father of modern economics? Um, a Scottish. 
uh, Scott, uh, John, um, I want to say Edwards, it's not Edwards. Um, anyway, they got a statue of him in Edinburgh. But the modern of modern economics, he wasn't a Christian, but guess where he was raised? In a Christian environment, a Christian worldview. And he developed his economics, everything that we've based our free market system on in modern economy and the movement of money and labor. Well, the basic principles flowed from his thought that he was taking biblical principles and ideas and opening them up in the realm of economics. I cannot think of his name, but maybe I will by the end of the thing. Is that Adam Smith or Hagel? Smith, what? what? Um, this one was a Scott. It's, um, so education, commerce, economy, sanitation, modern sanitation. Where do we, where are those principles gleaned from the scriptures? And that's why the Christian nations, I mean, look at the, look at the, the filth that we would find in, in what we might call the dark ages. But did you know that in the dark ages, many of the greatest inventions were created in the dark ages? Modern medicine had advancements. Telescope, science, astronomy, all of these things made huge strides when? During the dark ages. But we're told, but see, the dark ages are to impress upon our minds something that's, eh, oh well. But, you know, then we have the age of enlightenment. The Renaissance. What was the age of enlightenment? Greek philosophy. See, it's supposed to trump Christendom. See, these are movements and, and, and movements of ideas that are very important to the problem that we have today. Because the question is, how will a nation walk together? How can we be unified when we're so fragmented? Right? When we're so segregated, how do we move forward? And, and, and whose laws are we going to implement? Will it be the atheists? Will we give them the head up? Will we say, look, okay, you take it now. We've had it for a few hundred years. We've obviously made a big mess of it. You atheists, run with it. Is it going to be the Muslims that have come over to this country and have established even cultures and communities where they are even is slightly maintaining some Sharia law? Are they going to blast the horns and make all the Christians stand there while they pray three times, five times a day? Whose laws? See, these are the practical outworking of these things. Are we going to go with the Indians and the, the uh, a Buddhists? Right? Are we going to go with their laws? Are we going to get sucked up into the, to the, to the mysterious realm where all things become is and become nothing? All of this this philosophical, you know, double talk. Or, or is that what we're going to do? Are we going to become pagans? Are we going to, uh, we're the Christians. You see, a house divided cannot stand. Jesus taught us that. 
And that's one of those, these principles that, that, that I'm not touching on here, but this is one of the undercurrents of these principles is that Burks points out, you have to have a monolithic, unified nation. And that, na- and that typically comes philosophically through its laws, through its religion. And now, I'm not speaking Chinese. That makes sense to me. That just makes sense to me. I mean, we know how important it is for married couples to be on the same page. How much more leaders of nations to be on the same page? This is, <laughs> these are serious. It's even more important in one sense because there's more at stake. What's at stake in what we're doing right now in the taxation and the taxation on inheritances, the passing down of wealth from uh, one generation to another is becoming impossible. You're not allowed to do that in the new world order because the state has claimed a right to that inheritance. Where did they get this? Because they have their own gods. Okay? I hope I'm making sense. So this idea you have people coming out against colonialism, that is a back that's a backhanded slap against Christianity. Because Christianity was such a force and a movement to move throughout the world for the improvement of the world. Were there heinous things done? Of course there were. We don't justify that, but we can't look at that as, as, as these exceptions and, and, and ignore the massive good that's happened. The massive benefits that have come through the movement of Christianity from nation to nation from people to people and generation to generation. Without Christianity, we're going to see, and we are seeing it, well, without Christianity, slavery would still be thriving in its old form. It still would be. Because the Christians are the ones that put it to death. By and large, it was the Christian nations. And even this nation, believe it or not, um, if you read the book by Thomas Sowell, an economist, he addresses that, that there was still the ongoing practice of slavery as we knew it in the in the old world, so to speak, up into the 1900s, up into the 1900s. And it was the sanctions, it was the economic sanctions that were placed on these nations by, by you know, uh, what was it, uh, England. I was trying to, I don't know whether to call it the UK or, uh, you know, whatever, but it was England at the time. England and other Christian nations in the United States put economic sanctions on these territories to cease in their slave trade. And they did. That's a good thing. That's using a positive influence to stamp out an evil. Whether they agreed with it or not is not the matter. The gospel can come later. 
The change of hearts can certainly come later. But as a Christian nation who had a duty to do what? Stamp out evil where it can. But read Thomas Sowell. He'll sort that out for you. I think the book is actually called um, Black Rednecks and uh, uh, White Liberals or Black Rednecks or something in liberals anyway. It's an it's a excellent little treatise on this movement that we, this culture war that we see going on. Even Thomas Sowell brings out the fact that um, the slave trade had been thriving much, much long before the United States got involved and even in the United States with the, in the early uh, nine, eight, 900, uh, 1,000 AD and 11 and 1200 AD with the Ottoman empires and whatnot, this white slave trade was thriving, growing, pirating. And I don't mean to be crass, but again, with the, with the military movement of Islam, uh, white women were a treasure and they were targeted for slavery. This is not fiction. This is reality and historical fact that historians know about but never talk about. Christianity has done some incredible and amazing advancements in cultural civilization. And because we see Christianity being beat back into a corner, what should we expect to happen more slavery, which we have now trafficking humans. That's just slavery. We have human trafficking on, that, that's not just on the rise. We, we have been blind and we've been duped. We've been shielded from how prevalent it is. Why? The more Christi, true Christianity is beat back, the more evil will rise in this world. That's a fact. We can't afford as Christians to sit back in our pews and pray just to make it to heaven. We have to engage ourselves in the world that God put us in. This is a good world. It's a fine world. God made it and said it was good. And we need to believe him. And we need to act like it. And we need to believe what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that the meek is going, are going to inherit the earth. This is not going to be something passing away. It's a possession that will be inherited and, and owned by the saints. And we need to treat it as such. Let's get into the first principle, maybe the second one. I think I've said enough to get in trouble and I'm fine with that, honestly. I think we're beyond niceties. And hopefully this will not only help you, but what I've said may help some who listen to it online. The first principle of a Christian state is to recognize and to believe that the scriptures teach that civil government is a divine ordinance. Civil government is a divine ordinance. Burks emphasizes this. He, he, he promotes this truth and basically rests upon that if, the, if civil government 
is a divine ordinance, then we ought to have certain expectations about it that, well, are biblical and, well, God-honoring. And we should also see it as a good thing because it comes from God. Now, this, is a, this may seem like a minor point to you because you have heard various teachings, you've been under various ministers that have taught this, but many have not, and they don't see the, the, the magistrate or the civil government, the, the, what we call the system of the civil government, they don't see it as divine, divinely ordained. They see it as a necessary evil or more of a cultural construct. That is, again, because we evolved and we improved over massive generations, numerous generations that we decided that, well, we got tired of fighting among ourselves, so we established some system of governance. So it's man-made, its origin comes from man, and there's a lot of Christians that believe that, but that is not biblical. The proof text for this is Romans chapter 13. Now, Romans chapter 13 does not address all facets of the civil magistrate. It doesn't lay out, if you will, a manual on the civil magistrate. And I think that's a mistake that well-intended Christians make when they come to this text. Paul is just basically stating that the civil magistrate is God-ordained and his servant. And that's a massive point to this discussion. I want to begin reading at verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Let's stop there. We are... (laughs) We as Christians should have no problem understanding that if there's any legitimate authority in this world, it has to come from God. Why? Because God is the primary, he's the original authority. And when God placed Adam over the head of the human race, he had the prerogative to do so. God had a prerogative, and that is that is just as God, just as as um, marriage, the family, just as the marriage flowed from the will of God for the benefit of mankind on the earth that God created, so does the civil magistrate. The civil magistrate, the, the civil government, and it can look, it can take many forms is a gift of God to this world for order, peace, and justice, which are essential to the well-being of any nation. And so we see that in verse 1. It's given by God because it's given by God. That is, the call to subjection comes ultimately from who? God. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. 
For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. And do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. There you go. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God and an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to honor. Let's just make some app, let's make some observations and applications. We see that it's a divine ordinance. And we are told that it's given for our good. And we're called to be in, we're commanded to be in subjection to it. In subjection to all that is good. We are never to be in subjection or we're never to obey any authority that tells us to sin. Ever. That includes a parent. If your parent told you to go rob somebody, you have the above authority of that parent to say, no, I will not. Just like when the government commands that we partake in evil, we are duty-bound to recognize at that point the higher magistrate who is God in Christ and say, no, we will not. That's why um, John Knox talked about the duty of rebellion, that Christians have a duty that when civil magistrate goes beyond their, their reasonable responsibilities and command of the Christian, be, you know, sinful things, it is the duty of the Christian at that point to obey God and disobey the civil magistrate. And that's why throughout, the, throughout time, governments have persecuted Christians and seen them as rebels because they had commanded something that was evil and ungodly. Like, for example, when Pharaoh told the Hebrew midwives to abort the children, what did the Hebrew midwives do? They disobeyed Pharaoh and God blessed them. What did um, Rahab the harlot do when the civil magistrate soldiers come in and ask her, where are these spies? And she diverted them in a different direction. She protected them because they were God's people. And she knew that they were, well, 
God was coming into that area. It was a well-known fact. God was moving. God was fulfilling the prophecy that he had given to Abraham. This was not out of the vacuum. It was not out of secret. They knew this was coming. She recognized it. That's why the Bible in Hebrews 11 calls her a woman of faith because she had heard about this. She had heard about this prophecy. She had known this goes all the way back to Abraham 400 years earlier. She had known they had been taught these things and she expressed faith in the God that was moving in the land. And that's why Hebrews 11 recognizes that faith. So we are to live in subjection to civil authority as as much as we are able to do with a clear conscience and not beyond that. This Rule is what has made true Christianity appealing, valuable. Um, it was a, you know, one of the complaints we have about modern Christianity is it's it's feminized. It's weak. Jesus is effeminate. He's the blue-eyed, long-haired Jesus, you know, that has a, talks with a lisp. And, you know, he would never hurt a flea. And that's not appealing to men. That's not appealing to even a lot of women. This Christianity has always been a source of strength. And that's why some of the best patriots the world has ever known have been Christians. A love for God, a love for country. Understanding the role of Christendom, understanding how important these laws are, understanding the importance of justice. And listen, when you have a nation that have committed to these Christian rules and principles, it's worth defending. (laughs) That's why we have a just war theory. We are allowed to defend ourselves and we're allowed to do it passionately. I was called and asked by a a political figure if I would be a part of the modern black robe regiment. Any of you know what that is? The black robe regiment was a regiment during the time of this revolutionary war. And it was clergy. And you can see pictures and portraits of this, but you had ministers packing muskets with hymnals, pages, leading the charge of their congregations to fight against the English. And they were called the Black Road Regiment. They led the way. And they're saying, there's a, they're saying that we need more ministers to rise up and to be like the Black Robe Regiment, not afraid to speak of these things, not afraid to talk about these things, and, and, and be bold and courageous enough to speak the truth. And I, it's, certainly, it's certainly appealing, and I think it's needed. Christianity does breed a, a, a form of patriotism that this country hasn't seen in a long, long time. A long time. So, 
A lot of people say, well, but the civil magistrate's not this government. Well, listen. The text says they are minister, ministers of God. Well, brothers and sisters, there's bad ministers and good ministers, right, of the gospel. They may not believe they are ministers of God for good. And they're going to stand before God. And they're going to be triply accountable. And I wonder where the church will be on judgment day when it comes to informing the civil magistrate of her duty. Will we fall? Will I fail in that? Because again, it is the church's job to come beside the state and the state beside the church in various aspects and to teach and preach the state what her roles, what her obligations, what her duties are, what her moral obligations are. And they have a moral obligation to do good and to, be, and to see themselves as ministers of God. That's the same word used for gospel ministers. To be an avenger of evil. And yet, what we've seen all over the world primarily is that governments are not a, an avenger of evil. They are the primary source of evil. So, that's point number one. Civil, civil government is a divine ordinance. Point number two. The church, and only the church, has spiritual sovereignty. The church, and only the church, possesses spiritual sovereignty. Here's what Burks means by this, and it's why it's biblical. Is that it is, the, just as the civil magistrate has a responsibility for the public good. The church has a moral responsibility to the spiritual good of its citizens, of its membership, and of the, the citizens of the state. Because why? We should encourage people to be church members, to believe in Christ, to profess faith in Christ and to be members of a church where they can be discipled and they can learn how to be productive, how to be useful, how to be better fathers, uh, mothers, husbands, wives, sons and daughters, employers, employees, students, whatever the case may be. Give... A, a seeing both sides where the church possesses spiritual sovereignty, the church's focus are matters of faith, morality, and spiritual well-beings of individuals and families. And Burks goes on and argues that the state should never ever usurp or interfere with the church's role in discipling. The people are families. That, that's the job of the church. Text of scripture, Ephesians chapter five. Verse 23. And this is the 
section that Paul is dealing with headship. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as, at, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And of course, let me, I'm going to make application to an understanding. There have been men, and I think in women, not one-sided, when they read this subject to, in, in everything, that it's, it's without, without equivocation. And that's not true. Why is it not true? Because there is only one ultimate sovereign, and that's Christ. The husband is a limited sovereign, just as the civil magistrate is a limited sovereign. He's not ultimate, meaning he doesn't have the prerogative to, he doesn't have God's prerogative. You speak and ask for anything and it shall be so. He can only speak to those things which are lawful, which are reasonable, which are becoming of the relationship for the good of the relationship. And of course, I know there can be some explanation there, but that's it in a nutshell. And of course, the text tells us that Christ is the head of the church in this way, this spiritual head. He is feeding the church. We took the Lord's Supper this morning. What was Christ doing in the Lord's Supper? He was feeding us his body and blood. What was Christ doing in the preaching of the gospel this morning? Christ was feeding us his word. He was bolstering our faith. He was enlivening our, our confidence, our hope, our assurance. He was sturdying us up for the world that we live in, giving us confidence that we are the sons and the daughters of God. That's his role. That's his job. And he's also creating love between brothers and sisters. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now we know Christ is also the head of the nations. We've looked at many of those verses. But here's emphasizing the head of the church. Why? For the purpose of, of growing and building up what? The kingdom of God. Where? On earth. On earth. This is a fine world we live in. It's suitable. It suits us. It suits us. We were made for it. And we are to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. That his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. How many thousands or millions of Christians prayed that prayer today? And not think about the implication of it. Thy kingdom come. Well, what's it going to look like when it gets here? Right? Now, brothers and sisters, I ask that you treat this topic wisely. 
Be careful. Don't be afraid. Just be wise and careful because this is the battle of the future. These are the conversations we're going to have to have. As the more they push diversity, the more they push this multiculturalism, somebody's got to ask the question, whose laws are we going to live by? Whose justice? You know, they all have a justice system. We're going to be okay with that. The Christian justice system has proven to cause nations to thrive and grow and be at peace. That's a fact. That's a fact. So don't buy the line. Don't, don't give in to the, 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 the modern argument of anti-colonialism, anti-Westernism. Oh, look, because that is nothing but a backhanded slap to what used to be known as Christendom in the Western world. Be wise about it. Let's pray. And Father, we ask your blessing upon us. These are things that must be pondered and must be thought on, and I pray that we would take the time to do so. Father, we lay this before you because it is premature. It is, it is definitely the debate of the future. But at the same time, Lord, grow us in this understanding. It's new to us in many ways. So help us, O oh Lord, to, to, to mature and to be wise in these matters, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, we could probably take one or two questions before we sing a hymn. Dave? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think what we have to realize, though, because there's no contradiction in Scripture, that when that statement is used, he's talking about the world's philosophical system that's anti-God, not the world itself. So the Bible never speaks begrudgingly about this physical world. In fact, it really exalts it. And... Um, you know, our father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Why would he want to possess something so dirty and nasty? Yeah, good question. Another one? Any more? Okay. I'm not going to twist your arm. Um, let's sing The Church is One Foundation. Is that 81 or let's see. 181 was... Let's see. Does anyone have it? Two seventy. Okay. Let's stand and be dismissed with this hymn.